Peace be with you, church. Uh, If you would open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. And today we start in verse 25. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and Count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whatever whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray, church. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you, Father, equip us to live um, in a world that is often against us and against you. Father, we thank you that you... Uh, show us how to properly order our lives, our loves in our lives, Father. And so we ask that you would do that again today through your word. Father, may you show uh, how, how the greatness of Christ and why he is worth dying for and laying our lives for and following. Lord, help us to see that. Uh, Father, open up our eyes, open up our minds to see you and the beauty of the way to which you call us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, As we read the Gospels, one very interesting thing we see about Jesus is that he was the greatest critic of the hype that surrounded his own ministry. Um, He he didn't buy in to, to, to this excitement that would happen around him. And he would often turn to the crowds and question their motive. Jesus knew how superficial the crowds that followed him were. Uh, They often wanted either a healing, they wanted to see a miracle, they wanted to be fed, um, yet many of them did not understand what Jesus was really calling them to as he called them to the kingdom of God. Today, many church leaders, uh, they would give everything to have a following that Jesus had, to attract crowds. And some leaders go out of their way to present Jesus in the most acceptable 
and least offensive way possible in an attempt to attract people to the church and to Christianity. Um, They promise how amazing their lives will be if only they follow Jesus. Jesus did not do this. As he calls everyone to himself, as he called everyone to himself, he would also tell them what the cost of following him will be. And he made it clear that the cost of following Jesus will be great. And we see in our text that once again, there's a great crowd that is following Jesus. We read in verse 25, now great crowds accompanied him. And so Jesus gives them a reality check. He begins to question their motives. And if he begins to ask them if they really understand what they are committing themselves to. Jesus is like, do you really want to follow me? If you do, do you know what it will cost you? And Jesus calls them to consider the cost before committing themselves. And so Jesus tells them something that sounds very strange. This sounds very strange, and it sounds as though it is contradictory to the rest of Scripture. We read, and he turned and said to them, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is really strong language. Um, to be Jesus's disciple, Jesus, to be my disciple, you have to hate your parents, spouse, children, siblings, and yourself. What is Jesus getting at. Here's what he's asking. Are you willing to sacrifice your closest and dearest relationships for me? Are you ready to even lay aside your own life to follow me? That's the cost. You must forsake your life as you know it Everything you hold dear and love, you must forsake it to be his disciple. Now, let's unpack what does Jesus mean by hate? Is Christ really commanding us to be filled with hate towards the people closest to us? Is he really calling us to detest them? And the answer is no. Some of you are like, I hate my family. Great. Thank you, Jesus, for the permission. But that is not what Jesus is saying here. The answer is, of course not. He's not calling us to detest and to really hate the ones who are closest to us. This is a figure of speech to show how great and supreme Christ must be in our lives compared to all the other loves, compared to all the other things and people in our life. Jesus is showing us how to rightly order our loves if we are to follow him. We love a lot of things. We desire a lot of things. We strive for a lot of things. And Jesus is showing us how we are to properly order those things if we are to be his followers. One of the reasons why we can be sure that Jesus is not calling us to literally hate each other and despise those who are closest to us is because he actually 
commands through, throughout his teachings that we are to love our neighbor. We are to love our parents, our spouses, our siblings, our children. One of God's greatest commandments is our responsibility to love our neighbor. For example, if we go to uh, Matthew 22, verse 35, one of the lawyers came to Jesus. He was trying to trip Jesus up to test him. And so he asks Jesus, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Like, what is the greatest commandment? What stands above them all? In other words, what is the most important thing that we must do as the people of God? What defines us? What marks us as God's people? And Jesus says to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. This is exactly what Jesus is calling us to in our text in Luke chapter 14. He calls us to love our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. This is the great and first commandment. This is the most important thing we can commit to as the people of God. But Jesus does not stop. With the first, he also gives the second most important commandment. Jesus continues and says in verse 39, And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus, later Apostle Paul, will confirm this. They say that these two commandments, they sum up the Christian life. If you fulfill these two commandments, you have fulfilled the entire scripture. Love God, love your neighbor. The two greatest commandments. The greatest is love God, the second is love your neighbor. So if these two are the greatest commandments, they're one after another, where is Jesus coming up with all this hate stuff? Aren't we to fulfill the second greatest commandment and love our mother and father and sister and brother Wives and husbands instead of hate them. This is very important for us to see. This text in Luke chapter 14 reveals to us how great is the gap, how great is this spread, the chasm between the first commandment and the second commandment. These two greatest commandments in, in, in which we can sum up all of our Christian life, this text right here that we are studying this, this evening, Jesus shows us how great is the gap between the first, the greatest commandment, and the second greatest commandment. And this gap, this spread is huge. Jesus is telling us how much greater the first commandment is than the second. Our love Our allegiance to Jesus should be so great that all other loves, they fade, they pale in comparison. Our commitment to Christ must be so great that it overshadows, overpowers all other commitments. 
Jesus is ordering our loves and he is showing us how great our love for him should be in comparison to everything and everyone else. For example, think of someone most dearest to you, someone uh, you really love, maybe your kids, maybe your spouse. Um, You you love them. You, You would do anything for them. And now think of something petty, something meaningless that you also love. For example, let's say chocolate. A lot of people love chocolate. You love both of these things, but your love for your wife, your love for your kids, is so much greater than your, than your love for chocolate. At least we hope so. <laughs> love is not even an appropriate word to apply to chocolate when we compare it to the love that we have for those who are dearest to us. You would lay down your life for your family, but you wouldn't for chocolate. Some might look at the way you love your family. They might look at the way you love uh, your family in comparison to chocolate, and they might even ask you, why do you hate chocolate? I don't hate chocolate. I just love my wife. I love my kids. I love my husband so much more. This is what Jesus is getting at here. There is this great chasm that exists between the way we love our family and friends and the way we love chocolate. That's the same gap that must exist between the way we love God and the way we love our neighbor and everybody else. Jesus is reordering our loves. Another example, imagine a shelf in a library or an office or maybe it's in your living room. And on this shelf is all of your life. It is everything that your heart loves and holds dear. Jesus is showing us how this shelf should be organized. All the people in our lives, our work, our home, our hobbies, our books, sports, fishing, and everything else that we love, everything else that we desire and hold dear. When we walk into a library or we walk into an office, I I really appreciate a nice library, some nice, beautiful shelves. Um, we, we, We can quickly tell by entering into a library, we can quickly tell what the person who designed that library or that office who organized it, what they love most by the way they organized it. We can see what is the most central on the shelf, what is most visible. Maybe there's even a light that shines uh, on something that is featured in the middle of this shelf, something that is most important. It's a place of greatest honor. That's where Christ must be as we organize our loves, as we organize what is most important to us. Everybody else, everything else should be loved less in, to, in comparison to how much we are committed to Christ. Now, in this text, Jesus is warning, he's calling us to consider the cost. Jesus is saying that there is a cost to pay when we order our loves and commitments in such a way that Christ is the supreme love. It, it, it sounds as though 
yeah, that's easy. I'll, I'll put Jesus number one. I'll put him in the center. I'll put him as the greatest in my life uh, and everybody else after. But, but what's the cost? Is there really a cost involved? And Jesus wants to tell us, he's telling us that there is a cost to pay when we organize, when we order our lives in such a way, when we order our loves in such a way. And so he gives us two examples of how we are to count this cost. Verse 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able to, with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is a great ways off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So in the first example, Jesus tells us a story of uh, someone who went to build a tower or if someone goes to build a house or a building of some sort, they must first figure out the cost. They must see how much will this cost and can I even afford it? Can I even secure the funding needed for this project? And if we cannot afford it, we don't even start it. And in the second example, a king or military commander uh, is getting ready for battle, and he must take great care to think through every possible outcome of the battle that he is thinking to engage in. And if he sees that there is a chance that his opponent, opponent is, is going to overcome him, overpower him, he better go and negotiate peace. He better take that loss because the loss of going into battle is going to be much greater. And so in the same way, Jesus is telling us to count the cost of following him. He tells us that there is a lot at stake. Count the inventory. Don't jump into this blindly. Don't commit to following Jesus without first realizing and understanding what he is asking of you. So what is the cost? Again, where is the rub? What's so hard about committing ourselves to Jesus in such a way? To love Jesus, to commit to Christ is much more than merely words. Talk is cheap. A lot of people around us say that they love Jesus but there's really no cost to talk. Look at what Jesus is really calling us to. Jesus tells us that to truly love him and follow him means that we become his disciples. He says this three times. Look at verse 26, 27, and 33. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, so therefore any of you who, who, who does not renounce all that he has cannot 
be my disciple. To follow Christ is much more, more than just merely words. It's much more than to say that, yes, I do love Jesus and I follow Jesus. To follow Christ means to become his disciple. And to become his disciple is not a small calling. It's to become a student of Jesus. This was very common in those days. Uh, a rabbi would have disciples. Jesus was, a, was an unofficial rabbi, and he had 12 disciples who have abandoned their lives to follow Christ, to unlearn everything they knew, and to relearn at the feet of their teacher. This is what Jesus is calling us to do as well, to become a student of Jesus. It's a call to lay aside ourself, our preferences. It's to unlearn and to relearn according to what our teacher, Jesus, will teach us. In Matthew 28, when Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, he calls the apostles and he gives them the mission, the mission that will uh, apply to the church till the end of till the end of age and listen to listen to how he calls them listen to the mission and how he calls them to make disciples he says uh, Matthew 20 verse 19 go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit <clears throat> verse 20 teaching them to observe obey all that i have commanded you Jesus says to be a disciple is to learn all that he has commanded and is to obey all that he has commanded. And his word, it tells us, this word that we commit ourselves to, that we encourage each other to read, to be in, the word that we uh, sit under as we come to church, this word tells us, it reveals to us what God has commanded and what we are to obey. His word tells us everything that he loves, everything that he hates. Listen to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. This is, this is the father. This is the father rejoicing and exalting his son after what Christ has accomplished. And it says, but but of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of, <clears throat> of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. God the Father rejoices and he celebrates in the fact that his son loved righteousness and has hated wickedness. That Christ has uh, exalted righteousness and he triumphed over wickedness. And so as we, uh, we as students, as disciples of Christ, we are to learn what Christ loves and what Christ hates and we are to follow in the footsteps of our teacher. And this is where the cost comes in. What Jesus teaches us to obey, 
what Jesus calls us to love and hate as his disciples, it stands contrary to what this world loves and hates. What he teaches us to obey, what he calls us to love and hate, stands contrary to our fleshly desires. There is a cost to be paid here. That is why Jesus says in verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The cross is a torture tool invented by the Romans. It's a thing on which people go to die. A lot of people uh, interpret this text as you, you just you know wear, wear a cross on your neck and that's you bearing your cross and everything is great. You're fulfilling this. This is a figure of speech that which Jesus means you are to have this weapon at hand and ready always to kill the desires that are contrary to Christ. Paul says, I crucify myself daily. He crucifies the flesh that is contrary to Christ. So to follow Christ, we must bear our cross, crucify our flesh that is contrary to what God has commanded us. And there's a cost there. What Jesus teaches us to obey, what he calls us to love and to hate, stands also contrary to what our family and what our loved ones will desire and what they will say is good or evil. Some extreme examples of this are, we, we can find in places like China in Muslim countries today where those who become saved must count the cost of being rejected, disowned, at times even killed by the most dearest and loved people in your life. They must count that cost. And many, they taste and see the goodness of Jesus. They love Jesus so much. They commit themselves to him. They, 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 they align with him. They submit to him that they do not care that their life might end tomorrow at the hands of their most loved ones. This is very important for us to understand, church. In the West, we really didn't have to think through what the cost is of following Christ. We didn't have to think about this for the past few hundred years. We lived in a culture where to be a faithful Christian didn't cost us much. That's not the case now. We are entering a time when there is more and more hostility towards God, more and more hostility towards the faithful reading of God's word against the commands of Christ. And we have to, we have to consider the cost of following Jesus. We have to do it individually, we have to do it as families, we have to do it as a church. We have to count the cost of following Christ. And notice how Jesus hits so close to home. Why does he start with the closest relationships that we have? Kids, spouses, parents, siblings. Why are they on the line? It's because most of us don't really care what the guy down the street thinks about what we believe. We don't really care. But we deeply care what our closest loved ones say and think 
about what we believe. To save and preserve our closest relationships, we often compromise on what Jesus calls us to believe and how Jesus calls us to live. We do this for the sake of peace and friendship with the people that we love. Tell me, is that loving Christ more? What are we paying with? It's costing us our allegiance to Jesus, but it's not costing us our relationships. We're entering into a time when our closed ones, taken captive by all this craziness that's going on around us in, this, in the world, all these ideologies that we don't have time to get into, more and more of the people who are close to us will come out as gay or trans or whatever else, and they will expect us to agree, to affirm them, and to even say that they can live this way and still call themselves Christian. They will expect us to do so. And they will say that we are not Christian. We are not Christ-like if we do not affirm them. Have you considered the cost? Have you loved righteousness and hated wickedness like Christ, and are you ready to stand with Jesus even if it costs you many relationships? This is an obvious example, but in reality, our allegiance and love to Jesus gets tested every single day as we interact with our kids, with our friends, with our spouses, with our neighbors. So often we hold back and sacrifice our allegiance to Christ, because we desire peace and harmony with those who are closest to us. Have you considered the cost of following Jesus? What it will cost you to obey him in all that he has commanded. This is why Christ says, if the world hates you, know that it, hated me, that it has hated me before you. And we have to realize that often the world is not somewhere out there. It's really much closer to us. A lot of times it will be, this hatred will come from those who are dearest to us. Have you considered the cost? This is a question that Jesus is asking. Do you realize what it means to have Jesus as your ultimate and supreme love and allegiance? Do you realize why it's so important to love Christ so much more than anything else in your life, any relationship in your life? Because the temptation to compromise will be great. Church, God clearly and emphatically calls us to love him, to love our neighbor, to love one another, he calls us to have our love for him be much, much greater. Our loves must be rightly ordered. In response to the growing uh, difference between culture and the world, uh, culture and the word of God, seeing how 
the scriptures, it stands in opposition to so much of uh, what is happening against us. Many Christians have attempted to close uh, this, this gap, to stay relevant, to stay winsome by reversing the order of these two great commandments. That's, that's what's happening at large today. Many Christians are reversing the order of these two commandments, and they are saying this is what God is requiring of us. To them, the most supreme thing a Christian must do before all is to love their neighbor. This is the greatest thing that we, they say that we must do as Christians. Instead of maintaining the gap between our love for God and people, they have blurred the two and even reversed this order. And now the greatest way they say we can love God and to be Christian is to love our neighbor, which means to accept them where they're at, to affirm them in their sin, to never mention the sin, even if you disagree, because the greatest thing you could do for them as a Christian is to stand beside them and love them while they are living contrary to the word of God. There's a reversal that has happened where loving your neighbor has been lifted up and above loving God and being a disciple who loves what Jesus loves and hates what Jesus hates. And friends, that's not love. To love people in this way is not love. Having our loves rightly ordered, to love God supremely, it empowers us to love our neighbors rightly, which at times will be that we must tell them the truth about their sin, even if it costs us that relationship. This is the cost. This is the great cost of following Jesus and being his disciple. Church people are attempting to maneuver about uh, around this cost in many ways. To somehow, there's this attempt to somehow be Christian, to, to be friends with Christ and to be friends with the world, to be respectable in the sight of the world. And you cannot have it both ways. We can't. That's what Christ is calling us to consider the cost. And this is, church, precisely what Jesus is telling the crowds. Count the cost and be fully in or be fully out. If you have the money, if you have what it takes, which if you realize, if you have what it takes means if you see Christ great enough and amazing enough to commit yourself to him, then be fully in. And if you don't, be fully out. There is no reason to dabble here and there. The cost is high. Consider it. And be fully in and fully out. Or fully out. You cannot have it both ways. That is what Jesus is telling us. And Jesus finishes with these words. Salt is good, verse 34. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure piles. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus shows us what happens 
if we do commit to him, if we do make him our supreme love, if we uh, give our allegiance to him above everything else, and what happens if we don't? Salt is a preserver. Salt prevents decay. We salt our meats. We, uh, people especially who work with nice Spanish hams and salamis, they use salt to preserve, uh, preserve meat. It kills the bacteria that rots the meat. And so Jesus is saying, if our love and allegiance are rightly ordered, if we have counted the cost and are committed to Christ and the truth that he calls us to live in, we will become this preserving agent in the decaying world that we live in. And if we sacrifice Christ and all that he has commanded commanded for the sake of peace and for the sake of relationships, for the sake of gain in this world, if we sacrifice Christ, we become useless. We are Christians who are not, who, 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 who are salt that has, has no power. It's lost its taste. We are unable to preserve, and the only good thing is to be thrown away. And so church, as Christ calls us to count the cost, he is the one who has already paid the greatest price to commit himself to us. The God who is calling you to lay down your life for him has given his son to redeem us by laying down his own life for us. He is not calling you to do what he has already not done. We are creatures who have sinned against our creator and our holy God. We deserve to die. We deserve to pay for our sin. Our holy God does not, and yet he, the holy and righteous God who dwells in glory, lays it all aside to come into this earth, to live the life that we could not live, the life that we failed to live, to die the death that we deserved, and to then resurrect, defeating our greatest enemies, sin and death, so that he might have us as his own. That is what Christ has done. That is how he was and is committed to his church, to his people. You cannot commit to Christ before you see and understand and taste what he has done for you. So church, we must look at the cross and the cost that Christ has paid as we consider the cost of following Christ. I want to close with Philippians, reading out of Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7. Uh, these are the words of Paul. This is, this, is, uh, this is a man who has counted the cost. And he has considered it. And he has chosen to go fully in with Jesus, to lay down his life for Christ. And this is what he writes, Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Church, this is what we gain when we lose our life here. We gain Christ. We gain resurrection from the dead. Church, there is always a cost to pay. Lose your life here, and you will gain it for eternity. Gain your life here. Sacrifice your allegiance to Christ for the sake of, 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 of keeping relationships here. And you will lose it for eternity. That's the cost. Consider it, church, and see how much greater Christ is than anything we can gain in this life. So that with Paul, we may also say that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's the hope that we have in Christ. It's the promise that we have in Christ. Our death here is not final. We will resurrect to eternity with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you equip us on how we are to live our lives. And Father, as we hear this call to consider the cost Lord, may we, we, may we see that the cost is great. Lord, may we prepare ourselves to pay this cost, to bear this, this burden, to bear the cross that you have called us to bear. And Father, forgive us that so often we are ashamed of you and we sacrifice you for the sake, sake of keeping relationships and people here. Father, show us how much greater your love for us is than the love that anybody else can have for us. Lord, help us be a people devoted to you, devoted to your word. Father, help us see that by loving you as you call us to love you, that is the greatest way that we can love our neighbor, Father. And it means that at times, Lord, truth will hurt. Truth will uh, break relationships. So, Father, help us count the cost and commit ourselves to you because there is so much gain in losing our lives for you. Father, be at work in us and those who do not know you yet, Father. Those who are maybe still considering the cost, I just pray that your spirit would be at work in their hearts, showing the greatness and the glory of Jesus, their creator, their Lord before, them, before whom they will stand and give an account. Father, may they meet you as their savior and not as their judge. There's always a cost to be paid. Father, be at work in us, your church. Help us as your people, Lord, to not be ashamed of you, to not be ashamed of the gospel, to not be ashamed of the life that you have called us to live. 
Father, we want to be a community that is salt and that is light. So help us do that, Father, for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.